difficult stuff to wade through, more difficult than perhaps some other material. But, uh, all right. The, uh, the sermon, so to speak, in the synagogue has uh, been finished, and um, we see what happens in the aftermath here as we pick up in verse 60 of chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to, to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of Israel." Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your word, like the rain and snow, and it will not return empty. May it accomplish that which you purpose and be effective in fulfilling your goals among us. Instead of thorns and briars, we ask that you would produce cypress and myrtle among us. In other words, make us strong in Christ as we seek you, forsaking our own way and our wicked thoughts because your way and your thoughts are higher and greater than ours. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Charles Haddon Spurgeon has been called the Prince of, Peacher, of Preachers. Uh, he is to the post-Reformation age, in a sense, is what uh, John Christosinum was to the early church, one of the most famous preachers of all time. And uh, I had the privilege in uh, my, one of my history classes I decided what I wanted to do was I wanted to look at a year of revival and see what Spurgeon preached. Because, of course, there are many who say that revival and the doctrines of Calvinism are like oil and water. They don't mix. And so I read through the sermons of 1859, which is a year in which a massive revival broke out in the city of London. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon was at the center of that revival. Almost every sermon 
connected in some way. He spoke the truth about the human condition, about the election of God unto salvation, about the preservation and and perseverance of the saints. And so my paper was pretty easy. I got to say, look at this. Sermon after sermon with quote after quote as he taught what he believed was the truth in the midst of revival. Now, Spurgeon had one fault. Well, I'm sure he had many. Okay. But there's one fault with his preaching, and that is this. There were times when Spurgeon preached the right doctrine, but from the wrong text. Now, I wish his sermons on this text were available online. They're not. I looked. Okay? Otherwise, I would have poured through them and seen what he did with this, because I think this is one of those passages where we often preach the right, te- right doctrine, but this may not be the right text. In other words, this is tough stuff that we're looking at today. There are a couple of portions of this of which there is significant disagreement and to which there are no easy answers. But it's not just that it's hard, but these are hard words to hear and to believe. So let's ask again that God would have mercy upon us as we consider these words of Jesus. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus knows who is his... Sorry, it should be whom? Whom is his and who isn't? Jesus speaks scandalous truth to professing believers. In other words, Jesus is not PC. Okay? He ends this sermon in the synagogue, and what happens is that there are more people who are grumbling. There's more people who are upset. There's more people who aren't getting it. But this time, it's not those guys out there. This time, it's his own disciples. Not the twelve, but we see the larger group of disciples that has been following Jesus at this time. They are the ones walking out of that synagogue who are grumbling, talking with themselves, how can we believe this? Okay? Fortunately, that doesn't really happen around here, I think, when you guys leave after the worship service. Can you believe what he said? That's crazy. You know? But that's what they were doing. Can you believe what Jesus has just said? What, in the, what are we to think of this? They heard all of this as if it was a harsh word or saying. One that is hard to believe. And Jesus, it says, knows what's going on because of who he is. And so he asks them. He doesn't just kind of, well, maybe I shouldn't, you know, rock the boat a little bit here. He confronts it head on. He says, do you take offense? That word that we have, take offense there, scandalized. We've brought that over from the Greeks for the word scandal and scandalize. Are you offended by this? Does this cause you to stumble? What is it that was causing them to stumble? As we've seen in the last few weeks, it is the reality of the gospel. The truth that Christ must die, must bleed to save sinners. But also, all the truths that go around it, that there are those those who believe, only believe, 
because the Father has granted that they believe. The sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners is part of what scandalizes them. There's a sense in which I cannot help but think not only of Michael Card's song, Scandalon, but also the texts that back it up. We read from that in Psalm 118. We add to that from Isaiah 8, which Jesus, I think, also pulls from when he talks about this in Luke 20. In Isaiah 8, it says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inheritance of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And so, in Isaiah 8, it's talking about this, and we, we see this in our community groups. It's uh, the, the songs about Emmanuel, the, the desire that that's, God is sending a Messiah that's coming. And here in Isaiah 8, it points out the two reactions that are given, the one of faith and the one of unbelief. And for those who believe, this Emmanuel, this son of David, becomes a sanctuary, a safe place, a refuge. But to those who don't believe, this son of David, this Messiah, is a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, and they're going to trip and fall and break to pieces. Martin Luther, in commenting in his sermon on this passage in John, says, Therefore, we must either fall upon this stone Christ in all of our inability and helplessness, rejecting our own merits, and be broken to pieces, or he will forever crush us by his severe sentence and judgment. And so what Luther is getting at is that there are those who will hear, they will believe, and they will toss themselves upon the stone, and it may break them. But as Michael Card says, he makes them whole. He breaks them in order to make them whole. Sort of like how if there's a broken bone, the doctor sometimes has to break again to reset it. If it hasn't healed properly... It's to break it again to reset it. And that's what happens. Sin has broken us, and we've reset in a faulty condition. And we must be broken so that he might heal us and restore us. And so Luther talks about that, just as Michael Card talks about that. But those who do not fall in faith upon this, this stone will be crushed forever. Harsh words are going on. In this text, the focus of the disciples in these words, these concepts that they're having trouble with, is not difficulty in understanding, but it's difficulty in believing it. That's the emphasis that Jesus has throughout this. You do not believe. It's not you don't understand. He says you do not believe. And people still struggle with the scandalous nature of the gospel. They still struggle with the reality that it is all of grace. They struggle with the fact that they are sinners, that they are helpless, that they are God's enemies, as it talks about in Romans 5. 
They don't want this to be true of themselves apart from Christ. And so they re- resist and reject that. They want to believe in the innate goodness of man. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence for that around the world. Okay? But, you see this frequently. I remember one time preaching at uh, the Orlando Union Rescue Mission when I was working there. Um, Someone didn't show up to do the sermon at the chapel. Send in Steve. So, uh, sent in. And so I can't remember. I think I was in Colossians or something. But I had mentioned the fact that all of us before conversion were enemies of God, alienated from him in our minds by our behavior, as it says, uh, I believe, in Colossians. Or could it be Ephesians? can't remember exactly right now. And there was one guy afterwards who was like, I've never hated God. Oh, there's one person who has never hated God. Okay, He's measuring his experience by himself and not by the word of God. He did hate God. What do you think we do when we sin? We hate God. We say that we love him less than we love this thing that we want. We hate God. And we love our sin. The satisfaction of ourselves, or as as we did in our confession of sin this morning, sometimes the satisfaction of another. So Jesus says something that's really hard to understand in some ways, because we're not sure exactly where he's going with it. He says, what if? Don't you love the what if statements? I usually don't like people who do what ifs. Okay, But he says, what if you see the Son of Man? I want to make sure I get this right. Um, what if then you were to see the Son of Man ascending to the place where he was before? Okay. There's two ways that this is usually taken. The first is that the ascension would remove the offense. If they were to see things as they really were, if they were to see Jesus going up to heaven to receive the glory, that then it would be okay and the, the, the offense to them would disappear. R.C. Sproul takes this view in his commentary. He says, Jesus told them that there might be many things he would say that would offend them, but that those offenses would all be forgotten when they saw his perfection made manifest before their eyes. In short, Jesus sought to restore their perspective. It's a possibility. Second view is that this ties in with what we read in John 3.13, the ascension of Christ being tied with the humiliation and crucifixion of Christ, which is largely what this passage has been about, Jesus offering his flesh and his blood in the bloody sacrifice upon the cross, and therefore that this will offend them too. So you have it, the ascension removes all of the all of the offense, or the crucifixion creates even more offense. Let's see. Tough, isn't it? Because it's almost like Jesus' thought is interrupted. Thoughtus interruptus. Okay. But based on where Jesus goes next, on the fact of their unbelief, on the fact of 
the reality of the sovereignty of God and salvation, I don't think Jesus is imagining that the offense will be removed. But really is saying, this is just the tip of the iceberg. You could see these things, and it's not going to make a difference at all. What this, I think, really draws us to is that reality that religious people may be drawn to Jesus as a religious figure, as a great teacher, as a great leader of men, but they aren't drawn to him as the bleeding, dying Savior. And that's a significant thing. Because we only come to him as a bleeding, dying Savior. That is the only one that can rescue us from the wrath of God. The great moral teacher and the great leader of men can't rescue us from God's wrath. But people in their pride think that's all they need. I just need a little encouragement. I just need a little direction. I just need a better leader. No. You need a Savior. One who will rescue you from your sin and the wrath of God. And so I think also looking at this and pondering this, we see that there is a temptation, particularly among pastors, but not exclusively, to avoid offending people in order to build a church or to avoid offending your neighbors so you get them to go to church, whatever it might be. And we have, to, we have to recognize that wisdom is necessary. That there are some things which we can flex. There are secondary issues that we can flex with people on. But there are core issues that we must stand firm on. You don't die on every hill as a pastor. Okay, Every disagreement... You can't, you know, load up and, and go to the mattresses, okay, to steal from the Godfather. Or if you heard it in that Tom Hanks movie with Meg Ryan, one of those movies. Okay, you don't go for the throat over every disagreement in doctrine. There's some things that you have to live with within a congregation. Because not everybody is going to agree on everything, you know. But there's certain things that you cannot budge on. And these are the things that Jesus is talking about. He will not budge on the nature of the gospel, and neither should we. We have to stand firm on that. And so, Jesus is not afraid to speak scandalous truth that caused many to stumble. Secondly, Jesus' words give life to those the Father has granted him. Jesus gets to the core issue, the issue of their unbelief. But what he says here, again, is sort of tough to figure out. But let's remember, first off, he has made the gospel known to them. They have not believed it. Therefore, they do not receive the blessings that it it holds out for people. We see this particularly in Hebrews 4. And... In Hebrews 4, it's talking about the wilderness generation that fell away, and it says this amazing thing, for good news, or the gospel, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so, 
In Hebrews, he's saying the problem with the wilderness generation was not the gospel. It was not the good news that God proclaimed to them. It was not the promises that he held out for them. It is not the redemption that he gave for them in the getting out of Egypt. That wasn't the problem. The problem was their unbelief. And so they did not receive these things that were offered to them in the good news. And that's the same condition of this greater group of disciples around Jesus. They've heard the good news, but they're not joining it with faith. And therefore, they're not receiving the benefits of it. All right. Now we get to another one of these phrases that actually most people think they have it nailed down. You might be surprised. When Jesus says this, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. How many of you think you got that nailed down? You don't? No one? You're lying. <laughs> okay, there's two, again, there's two main ways to look at this. And one is the way that you've probably heard from so many people. And that is to see this as the inability of the flesh or our sinful nature to believe unless the Spirit works. Okay? Irresistible grace and total depravity right there. And if you go to many books on, you know, that talk about the five points of Calvinism, the doctrine of salvation, you will see this text referred to as a proof text for the fact of total inability and the irresistible grace of God. But is that what Jesus is saying? Are we preaching the right doctrine from the wrong text like Spurgeon sometimes did? And I might sometimes do. I'm not above Spurgeon. Okay? And anyway, if that is the way to understand it, then we have to recognize that Jesus suddenly uses flesh in a, in a way far different than how he uses it in the sermon he just gave. Okay? It requires a completely different understanding of that word flesh, more of Paul's understanding of flesh, the idea of the sinful nature, as opposed to what he had just been talking about, which is his human life given for sinners. Okay, do you understand that distinction that I've just made? So, if Jesus is being consistent in his use of the word flesh here, then that points us to a second understanding of the text, which is the one held by Calvin in this particular instance. For he says that this points to Christ as the life-giving spirit. It points to the idea that his death alone is insufficient to save in terms of application. Okay? His dying does not save alone, but something must apply his death to particular sinners so that they have life. And he goes to 1 Corinthians 15, which says, Thus it was written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. And he quotes, uh, Paul quotes from Genesis there. Okay. Now here's, here's the addition that Paul makes. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
And so in Paul's theology, what happens with the resurrection and the ascension is that Jesus now becomes a life-giving spirit. And so what Jesus might be referring to here is not the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but his own work as the life-giving spirit, completely in harmony with what he had just preached in the synagogue. I will give life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. So perhaps, I suggest, this is a better way of understanding this particular text. Precisely because dead men can't eat bread. Dead men can't trust in a sacrificial death. The Spirit, Jesus must send the Spirit for life. And so the second view does not deny the reality of the first. It encompasses it, but it has that idea of it's all about Christ who is doing this. Okay? Hetty, I know. Jesus continues. He says that his words are spirit and life. And so we, we recognize again that the spirit works by the word. The spirit does not work alone. If you uh, follow my blog at all, which has been largely dormant lately, but I've been doing a series from a book on sanctification that I've been reading, and this past week I, I blogged on the Pentecostal understanding of sanctification, and one of the problems that exists there is this separation of word and spirit. So when there's their worship services, it's about experience, what they're experiencing, they think, in the power of the Spirit, but it's completely disconnected from the preaching of the Word and the teaching of the Word. The Reformers joined Word and Spirit together like this, essentially meaning that if you don't have the Word, how can you have the Spirit? And if you have the Spirit, how can you not have the Word? They worked together. And so Jesus is basically saying this, word and spirit together, spirit and life come through his words. But we recognize that Jesus says his words don't give life to any and all who hear, but only those if it it has been granted to him by the Father. So again, we bump up against the sovereignty of God and salvation. On the one hand, we have Jesus saying something like what we see in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock to pieces? The power of God's word, not just to break a rock, but to change our hearts. So on the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have, like we talked about before from Acts 13, and when the Gentiles heard this, about how Paul was bringing the gospel to them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Or, as we read from our confession of faith from from Ephesians chapter 1, chosen before the creation of the world, predestined. By God. This brings us to the, the truth of Matthew 12 when Jesus says, For many were called, but few were chosen. 
And we've got to, you know, that's a hard thing for some, some people to reconcile, this idea. But we have the general call, which is the preaching of the gospel, which should be made known, be made known to every person, uh, regardless of what they look like or anything else. The general call of, of gospel truth and promises to people, distinct from the, what we call the effectual call in our confession of faith. And that is when God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the general call, gives life to the sinner. The one who doesn't receive that effectual call continues in their unbelief. But the one who does receive, believes. God's irresistible grace. And so we see this idea, even here in John 6, this idea of election which produces regeneration, which then produces conversion, faith and repentance. That's how we see this unfolding in John's Gospel. It's not something John Calvin created, made up, or placed on the text, but we see that Calvin's doctrine arises out of the text, if we're honest. John here makes... A parenthetical statement, he makes two, actually, and they're both very similar. But basically, John says that Jesus knew, and here's the key phrase, from the beginning. Let's insert the words, from the beginning of his ministry. I think that's what he's talking about within the context of what's going on here. He knew from the beginning who among all these people who started to follow him really believed and who really didn't. In other words, Jesus is not surprised that these people are having a problem, and he's not surprised that they're captured by unbelief. 2 Timothy 2 says that God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So Jesus knows those who really believe, and he knows those around him who don't. And so Jesus is not panicking. Jesus is not distressed that the the possibility of them leaving the church, unlike most pastors. When someone says they're leaving, we get all nervous and upset. You know, it happens. We're human. We're not like Jesus uh, in, in every way that we should be. In other words, he's not like Oscar Schindler at the end of Schindler's List. I'll get back to that when we get to the atonement. But that that is just a profound scene in the movie when the end has come and he's, uh, he's loading the souls he has redeemed with his money upon the train to take them away from the death camp. And it suddenly hits him that everything he still owns represents more people he could have redeemed from the Nazis. And he starts to be broken and taken to the place of tears as he, my watch, my watch, that's two more people. My car, that's 20 people. He begins to see everything he owns in terms of people who are going to be sent off to death that he could have saved. Jesus doesn't think that way. Precisely because All those that the Father has given to him will come to him. There will be none, there will be no experience of him saying, I wish 
a few more could have come in. He and the Father are in a complete agreement on this plan of salvation that they have contrived together and they have executed with the power of the Holy Spirit. But we see that Jesus does not plead with them to stay. Jesus is not driven by the fear of man, which is a temptation to us all. Okay? Paul talks about this. In Galatians 1, For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men... No, note that. If I were still trying to please men. He had previously been trying to please men. Okay? If I were still trying to please men... I would not be a servant of Christ. So part of the defining nature of what it means to be a servant of Christ is that we've put aside the fear of men and men pleasing because we want to serve the Lord and please the Lord. And so when we're tempted to fear others and their response to us, what we must remember is Jesus is greater. His is the opinion that really matters. His is the assessment that really matters. His is the love we should really be seeking. His is the joy we should be pursuing. Not our own, not someone else's. Not being a man-pleaser, but resting in his love. And so we see that the Father gives to people to Jesus to whom Jesus will give life by the Spirit. Third, last, Jesus calls all disciples to stay or go. I started a 80s music thing with Michael Card. I can't help but think of the clash. Not quite Michael Card. Should I stay or should I go? You may have noticed it on our Facebook page. This is why. As many or all of the other disciples have turned back from following him, they've departed. Jesus talks to the twelve. And he's calling forth, you can see this negatively, you can say this positively, I see this positively, as Jesus is calling forth a response of faith from the men that he has most vested in. He's not really vested in the larger group. He has really invested himself in the twelve. These are the ones that he picked, not the ones that picked him. Okay? Jesus had a click. And it's okay. Okay. Clicks can happen in churches and they can be bad things, but sometimes they're good things. If it's tied to ministry, it's often a good thing because a pastor and other leaders will invest in the people, spend more time with the people that they're doing ministry with. That's just the way it is. It's not bad. It's not meant to offend anybody. But we spend more time with those that we serve with and those often forge greater, deeper relationships with people. But this, this sort of separation begins to take place, and Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this. He says, our Lord always causes division. Everything he does, he himself, his words, his actions, always cause division that cannot be helped. Everybody must react to him, and there are only two main ways in which they can react. Faith and unbelief. Staying or going. That's it. They might go peacefully or they might go violently, but they go. So, Jesus puts this 
You're going to go with them? You're going to stay with me. What are you going to do? And we shouldn't be surprised who responds. Who responds? Peter. It's always Peter. The impetuous Peter. He pipes up. And he speaks truth. To whom shall we go? He recognizes that there are no other options. 80s music. Sinead O'Connor. No one compares to you. You can look at all the other religious leaders. Okay, Now, when, when Peter says this, there's no Buddha, there's no Confucius. He has a very limited understanding of, of you know religion based on being in Palestine in the first century. Okay, we grant him that. But you know what? If you do compare all those other religious leaders that have come since or were even before in other places, no one compares to him. What Peter is going to say about Jesus can be said about no one else. Jesus is absolutely unique. Now, when I mentioned a few moments ago about cliques and, and ministry and stuff like that, one of my friends, Jim Beatty, we served together. And one of the things that I always think of when I think of Jim, in addition to his incredible hospitality with him and his wife Debbie, but is this phrase. Where are we to go? No one else has the words of life. They know that though they, they struggle with Jesus says, these are the words that can give them life, and so they're going to stay and they're going to listen, and they're going to believe. In fact, he says that we have believed. Perfect tense, which means that they believed in the past and it has present relevance for them. They recognize that Jesus is more than a gifted teacher. He's more than a charismatic personality. He offers them life and they're fools to go anywhere else, even though it might cost them everything. Not only does he have the words of eternal life, but he is the Holy One of God. A phrase that is similar to that which we see repeatedly in Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. Let's just change that last one. He is the Holy One of God. He is something that Buddha and Confucius and everyone else cannot be. And now, Peter speaks mostly truth. For he's speaking for the group, he says, we have believed. And they did, except one. Judas Iscariot, who was going to hand Jesus over. It's almost a play on words. As the Father has handed people over to Jesus for salvation, Judas is going to hand Jesus over for death. He's going to betray him. You see, Peter can't see into the heart of anyone, but Jesus can. And in both of those parenthetical statements of John's, it makes allusion to the fact that this one was going to betray Jesus. Jesus knew from the moment he called Judas that Judas was going to betray him. It's not an accident. Well, first, before we get too much into Judas, let's see this idea of we have believed. John 8, 
In verse 31, Jesus says, So the disciples said to the Jews, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we see that this is the kind of true discipleship, not a one-time belief, but an abiding, ongoing belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus says to them, Did I not choose you? Now, He's speaking of all twelve, one of whom is going to betray him. The context of this comment is office. He chose them to be the twelve. The context is not salvation. They were chosen to be his disciples. Okay? These were not the ones who chose Jesus to be their rabbi. He picked them. But he declares that one of you is a devil. What a powerful way to say that. That Judas's agenda is so entwined with the devil's agenda that it could be said that he himself is a devil. Similar to when, when Peter tried to talk Jesus out of the cross and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter's not Satan, but the words he was speaking sounded just like Satan's. So Judas is walking the way of the devil. He's going to side with the devil in the betrayal of Jesus. Now, in terms of ministry, I want to warn you. Everyone who engages in ministry for any period of time will have people that they've chosen to be with, to invest in, turn their backs on them. If it can happen to Jesus, it can happen to me, and it can happen to you. But it shouldn't destroy us. Because we have to remember and recognize that really it's all about Christ. Remember, these disciples had gone away, you know, a ways with Jesus before they walked away. And there will be people who will go a ways with you and then part company with you. It happens. And sometimes they don't just walk with you, sometimes they serve with you. And it hurts. But it's not about you, it's about their relationship with Christ. And the real problem sometimes is that relationship. Sometimes it's just you have a sort of like Paul and, and uh, Barnabas. Sometimes you just can't agree on something. And that hurts too. But in this case, they're walking away from Christ. And that will happen. You will feel the sting of false accusations because that's what a devil is. The accuser, the slanderer. There will be people who will come like Judas and falsely accuse you and slander because they do the same thing to Jesus. You see? All right, let's wrap this up. In that Michael Card song, Scandal On, he sings, Jesus is, well, he didn't say the Jesus part, but a stone that makes men stumble 
and a rock that makes them fall. Many will be broken so that he can make them whole. And many will be crushed and lose their own soul. Jesus is the crossroads that everyone must pass, and some of them find life and some of them find death. This text in John 6 drives home this harsh truth and a few others. And while some may take their stuff and go home, those to whom the Father has appointed life will believe and continue to believe in Christ, whatever may come. That's precisely because Jesus, the life-giving Spirit, has put life into them. Has He put life into you? Let's pray. Father, I imagine Peter was not too excited about what he heard. And yet, because he trusted Jesus, he believed it was true. May the same be true of us. That when there are things we come across in the Scriptures that we either don't understand or we, we believe we understand and don't like, help us to remember to trust you. Help us to remember that Jesus alone, this book alone, has the words of eternal life. And there's no place else for us to go. And so may we cling to you, even in our doubts, even in our fears, may we cling to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.